We're in our penultimate week of our Revelation series, and it's great to have Dan preach today. I'm going to just pray for Dan, ask God to help him. Father, we thank you for uh, Dan and your grace on him to open up your word and teach. We just pray, Lord, he would really find the flow and the freedom of the Holy Spirit today. We pray, Lord, that he would feel such liberty. Lord, we really ask that, Lord, that he would be so at ease as he's preaching, Lord, that there would just be such a flow of your spirit through his words. And, uh, Lord, I pray that he would just know your delight and your joy as he, as he preaches. And uh, pray for us, Lord, that you would help us to have ears to hear what you're saying and to be, uh, to be transformed and washed by your word. Amen. 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 Hello. Hello. Um, two weeks to go in Revelation. I know what, is that a kind of a relief or <laughs> no, I've, I've been loving it. I've, Revelation's kind of my favorite book in the New Testament, so that kind of a bias on that front. But have you, you've been enjoying it? Yeah, yeah been liking it? Good. Uh, we're in Revelation 19 and 20 today. We are going to read pretty much through the whole two chapters, but we're going to do it in bits. Um, so just have your Bibles ready. The words will come up on the screen if you want to follow, but if you want to double check that what I'm saying is right got your own Bibles to do that. Um, so, so far, what we've looked at is basically Revelation is about the unveiling or kind of, it's like drawing the curtain back and showing you who Jesus actually is, what Jesus has actually done, and kind of looking behind appearances and looking to what's really going on. And we've kind of just seen it's, it's done in very vivid, sometimes confusing, but always very poetic and dramatic kind of language, which sometimes makes for difficult reading. But when you unravel it and understand what's going on, it kind of just leaves you in awe of who God is and in awe of what he's done. Um, and hopefully this week won't be any different. Um, so what happens this week is we finally get to the point where we direct our attention towards the future. So, so far what's been going on in the main has been looking at God's perspective on history. And f- from chapter 19 onwards, you turn your attention from history and glimpses of the future to suddenly looking at what's going to happen. What's going to happen when God basically returns and puts all things right. And that's what we're going to start looking at today. We're going to, I've called today the return of the king, because you have to have a Lord of the Rings reference in a sermon at some point. Um, so, but we're, we're going to look at the return of the king today. We're going to look at when Jesus comes back. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to start reading in chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 6 to 10. I'm just going to quickly explain verses 1 to 6. We're not going to read because they kind of fit with what's gone on before. So Steph talked about uh, Babylon last week, which is this um, kind of this city representing any ungodly empire or institution that opposes God. And the idea is that any ungodly or institution that opposes God eventually will be cast down and broken. And what you get in verses 1 to 6 in chapter 19 is heaven saying, hallelujah, God has destroyed the great prostitute. And so it's kind of like you get chapters 8... Um, 17 and 18 where you get John describing that almost kind of from earth's point of view a little bit and then you finally get heaven in chapter 19 saying now we can praise God because he has cast down the great prostitute the one who was uh, leading the nations astray with her sexual immorality so that's kind of why we're not including it here so what I want to do is start in verses 6 to 10 and uh, we're going to read one of the highest points of the whole of revelation so i hope you're ready um it's about the marriage supper of the lamb so if we could have the yep the the words up verse six then i heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the lord 
our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed, happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the point in Revelation where suddenly you go from God's perspective on history to God's perspective on the future. And it's the point where, remember John is writing to churches around kind of the day of, I suppose, what would be modern day Turkey, who are facing serious pressure. And he's now offering them the reason they can hope, which is that there's a future coming where all of their trouble, all of their suffering and all of their problems are going to be undone and everything is going to be made better. And we finally get our attention turned to that here. And it's it's one of the most uplifting parts of Revelation. For those of you who know your classical music a little bit, it's, it's, it's the part of Revelation amongst others that inspired um, the Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah. I'm sure you've probably all heard, I won't try and sing it, but you've all, all heard of it. In fact, no, I won't. In fact, those of you who are actually wide in that way, where you find music impacts you a lot, what I, part of what I did to prepare this sermon was um, wait till my flatmate was out because it would drive him mad and literally just blast the Hallelujah Chorus on loop through my speakers whilst reading this passage. Now, some of you might think that's really weird. I found it really, like, at times very emotional because you've got this incredible chorus of people singing Hallelujah, the Lord God, the omnipotent reigns, which is kind of taken out of this. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking I'm getting a bit of a glimpse into what that's going to be like. And it's it's really uplifting because what happens is the attention finally turns to the day where everything is made new. Everything is changed. Everything's transformed. There's no suffering. There's no death anymore. And heaven bursts into song and says, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Now, the reason I say has begun to reign, sorry to do the Greek geek thing, but most commentators agree with me on this, so I'm not just a wacko. This, the, the, the expression, um, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns, is probably best rendered, the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Not in the sense that he hasn't always reigned, but finally, we're talking about the day where the rightful king has taken his throne. Again, kind of return of the king, Lord of the Ring reference, uh, Rings reference. For those of you who haven't, sort of the one of you who hasn't seen it, um, sorry to ruin it for you. Um, basically, Aragorn, rightful king of the whole of, of, of the whole of Gondor, he's the rightful king for the whole story. Eventually, he ascends to his throne in the final, like the kind of closing scene, um, in a sense of the of the film or of the book, um, and. Suddenly, you, you see everything's been put right. The rightful king is on his throne. And there's a day coming where God will not just be king in the sense that he does reign because he always has, but he'll be king in the sense that he's completely uncontested. His reign is completely uncontested. There are no enemies left to try and defeat him. They can try. They won't manage. But there are no enemies even left to try. Just imagine that. There's, there's a day coming where the king who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous and perfectly loving and perfectly zealous for his people and for his glory is actually going to reign in an uncontested way. And that should give us hope. That should give us hope. If you're, you're one of the churches reading this that John's writing to and you're facing the pressure of this gigantic Roman Empire that looks impressive and looks... The, kind of the phrase was Roma Eterna. It was like Rome forever. 
Well, Rome fell eventually, but God's will not fall and his reign shall last forever and ever. And there's a day coming where that actually happens, where people, if we can look and we say all the suffering, all of the pain, all of the death, all of the persecution, all of the problems are over. The Lord God, the almighty has begun to reign. And that's a reason to sing hallelujah. If there's ever been a reason to sing hallelujah, that would be it. But we see also this is a marriage feast. So this isn't just God's begun to reign. It's not just an enthronement, but it's also a marriage feast. It's a wedding. And think, I mean, modern weddings are great. They're good fun. But think wedding from the old days, as in 2,000 years ago, wasn't just a kind of, I don't know, British middle class ceremony and then maybe a little bit of disco dancing at the end. You had to have a, a feast for days and days and days. It would be this gigantic celebration, which is why they ran out of wine at the wedding that Jesus went to. You can plan for a day, generally, for wine. But when you've got to basically have wine for a whole week, you can end up running out. So that you think that kind of celebration. So we've got a marriage supper and an enthronement. So the question is, who's marrying who? And the answer is the marriage of the lamb has come. So Jesus is marrying someone. He's marrying a bride. And this bride has made herself ready. This bride has made herself beautiful. This bride has clothed herself in white. And this bride is us. It's the church. And it says, the bride, the, the, the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How does that work? It was granted to her. She was allowed to wear white linen. It was given. It's like you've got these clothes, and you give these clothes to someone, and you say, you're allowed to wear them. And then it says, this linen represents the righteous deeds of the saints. Doesn't that sound like something you earn? And the answer to that is yes and no. (laughs) The, The idea is God says, you know what? I have got a bunch of people on earth who have fallen, who are sinful, and will never be able to get back to me. I am going to forgive their sins and enable them to do righteous deeds. I'm going to clothe them in white and I'm going to give them righteous clothes. And the fact that I've given them righteous clothes means that they can now do what is righteous. So it's a little bit like if you have a a bride who doesn't have a wedding dress and and you you just tell her, wear a wedding dress, wear a white wedding dress. You can tell her all you want. It's not going to help. If you give her a wedding dress and you say, wear this wedding dress, suddenly that becomes possible. That's the idea going on there. It has been granted to her. It was given to her to wear white linen, representing purity. That's why brides wear white. It represents just purity, spotlessness. And it was given to the church to wear that. And as a result, we can wear that. So when John says the white linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, he means God has given righteousness to his people so that they can produce righteousness. At the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, we are his workmanship, we're his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us. So the good works that we do are actually a gift from God, which means that we can look at this scene and look at the wedding day and say, we are going to be clothed in white. Remember, this is symbolism. We're not literally going to be, I don't know, all in a massive pyramid wearing a, 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 a somehow like a, a bride bride's dress or something but it's symbolic of the purity of the church the purity of of a church which comes from a bunch of people who are sinful and have been made righteous and have been allowed and given the holy spirit to produce righteous living that's what the righteous deeds of the saints is here and therefore john says happy are those who are invited to this wedding 
We said they've got the word bless. It's kind of one of those religious jargon words where no one really knows what it means anymore. Blessed in this, there are two words for blessed. This one means happy. It means, great, if you get the invitation to this wedding, you are going to be happy. And the, the amazing thing is, so you've got an enthronement, you've got a wedding, but in this weird imagery, the church is the bride and the guests. It's like the only people there are the, the church, who both happen to be the bride and the guests. It's just, it's interesting, it's weird imagery, but it's showing actually there's an ex- exclusivity to it. God is marrying his, God is marrying his son and a people, and the people get to assist at this wedding. They get to look at it. They get, like, it's kind of like they get to see themselves walk down the aisle. It's weird, it's, it's, it's symbolic, it's amazing, and it's symbolizing the fact that when God takes his rightful throne, it's going to be a gigantic celebration. And we're going to actually see what that looks like a little bit more in a, in a, in a couple of weeks. So Steph's going to preach on chapters 21 to 22, which actually just describes the marriage of the Lamb. But what the rest of chapters 19 and 20 do is they answer the question, well, how is this actually going to end up happening? So what the beginning of chapter 19 does is it directs our attention to the future and says there's a day coming where heaven's going to sing hallelujah. The Lord God the Almighty has begun to reign and the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's amazing. And the rest of chapter 19 says here's how we're going to get there. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look for the next 30 minutes at how we get to that point where the marriage supper of the Lamb comes. And we get four images in chapters 19-20 and we're just going to go through it bit by bit and we're going to read the relevant passages and we're not going to go into masses of depth or we'll be here for five hours, but we're hopefully just going to give you a glimpse of the greatness of each of these passages. Um, and so the, the four images we're going to look at are the return of the king, the binding of Satan and the vindication of the saints. I'll explain what that means in a bit. The defeat of Satan and the judgment of the dead. So you've got the return of the king first, the binding of Satan, so the imprisonment of Satan and the vindication or reward of the saints, the defeat of Satan and the judgment of the dead. So... Again, these images aren't necessarily kind of strictly chronological and fitting exactly into some kind of very clear time frame, but they're pictures of what will happen, whether it literally happens that way or in some kind of other, whether it's symbolizing something even deeper of how we get to the point where Christ will end up marrying the church and we get new creation and everything is made new. So we're going to look first of all at the return of the king. Got chapter 19 um, verses, we're going to read 11 to 21. So Off we go. Then I saw heaven opened, and look, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From him, his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies, gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the 
mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's not a very popular kind of passage. It's a scary passage. It's absolutely terrifying. And it should be. This is about the return of the rightful king to take what is his. And it should make us, whilst actually we'll see it should make us rejoice, it should make us terrified as well. Because this is about Jesus, after thousands and thousands of, year, thousands of years of seeing his planet, his creation, going astray, finally coming back and saying, enough, I'm taking back what is mine. And what we see here is that when Jesus, so this is kind of Jesus' return, I suppose, second coming, which again, it's, it's, so it's imagery, so we don't necessarily know, is Jesus actually going to come back on a white horse, or is this something else? But what we do see is that suddenly everyone realizes who Jesus actually is. Suddenly the eyes are opened, the veil's op- like taken away, and everyone who thought Jesus was just a nice, loving hippie who didn't say boo to a goose and will suddenly realize that he is actually the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that he is coming back to take his rightful throne. Suddenly we get heaven opened and we get someone sitting on a white horse. We don't get a humble king riding in on a donkey to Jerusalem. You get a conquering Messiah on a horse. We get one who in righteousness and ju- in, in righteousness judges and makes war. He is perfectly, utterly just, but he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Forget the kind of blue eyes in the, in the paintings that you generally get for Jesus. This... Messiah is coming back with eyes of fire, which again kind of represent judgment and fury, which we'll look at in a little bit. So very kind of, it's a different, we don't have to necessarily read through every single one and go into detail. You get the point that this is a very different kind of Jesus to what most people might be expecting. But what we'll see is this is bad news and good news at the same time. It just, it depends whose side you're on. This is the unveiling of who Jesus actually is. And he's come back to take his rightful throne. You see, in these verses, we see in verse um, 17 onwards, there's another supper. Remember, we've had the marriage supper of the lamb. In these verses, we get another supper. We get a supper for the birds, kind of the vultures. There's going to be a massive massacre in this passage. And an angel's proclaiming, come and gather for the supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will destroy everything that opposes him. And so my plea to you today is please make sure you're on the right side of him. Because he is totally righteous, totally just, totally loving. But if you're not on the right side of him when he returns, he will destroy his enemies. That's what a, king, that's what a, a righteous king should do. When a righteous king has had his empire completely taken apart and destroyed by his enemies, his right response is to come and to destroy those who have done evil against him he is absolutely furious he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty it's not the not again not the kind of picture we tend to think of when we think of jesus but john's going to extreme lengths here he's saying he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty it's like how how much more emphasis do you want to put on how angry he is but what i explain is he is angry for a very good reason Because he has seen every single human trafficking, he has seen every single rape victim, he has seen every single murder, 
He has seen every single oppression. He has seen the Holocaust. He has seen the Rwandan genocide. He has seen every single evil that has been done over the last few thousand years. And he is absolutely furious at it. And he should be. He, he should be. He has seen thousands and thousands of years of people opposing his rightful reign and doing absolute monstrosities by using the, the power that they're given, in a sense, of being in the image of God to create exceptional evil when they could have created exceptional goods. And he is furious. And he should be. And those of you who are here who actually, you, we should all feel a passion for justice as Christians. But those of you who feel, you know, I just have a sense of, I feel for those who are victims of injustice, those who are, I don't know, human trafficking, sl child slavery, whatever it is, where you think that just angers me to the core and I want to do something about it. He cares about it even more. He is far more angry and far more furious about that than you can be. And he is coming back to every single person who thought God will not hold us to account. Every single time that someone has been put to death or beaten or tortured and the person thought God is not going to hold me to account, Jesus is coming and he says, yes, he will. Justice will be done. He will judge and in righteousness he will make war. And it is good and it is good news because he is coming back to put all wrongs right. But again, I want to repeat, it is terrible news if you are on the wrong side of him. If you are on the wrong side of a righteous, just, furious king, that is bad news. My plea to you today is please, if you, tr please treat him with the respect he deserves. Please see him and think he is the rightful king. I have been rebelling against him. I have been using my, in a sense, my God-given being in the image of God for the wrong things. I want to turn and follow Jesus. Please would you do that? He will accept you. He will take you. He will cleanse you. He will clothe you with white. But please would you do that? I want to read a quick quote from a book by a guy called Andrew Wilson who puts this really well. Um, where he, he just talks about that the time where you realize who someone is and you didn't realize that was who they were. And he just, is it really, well, he's talking about this passage. passage. He says, moments where you suddenly realize who someone is can be devastating. Drama is built on it. King Oedipus and his mother, King Lear and his daughter, King Richard and the Sheriff of Nottingham, King Kong and the nameless person who accidentally steps on his foot. The more powerful the person, the worse it is to find out that you have not been treating them with the respect that they deserve. So it's not surprising that the most devastating moment of them all will be when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is shown for who he is. The biblical word for this is revelation. The Greek word has a sense of unveiling, disclosure, even denouement. That moment in the story when you finally realize who someone is and what it means. No earthly stories can prepare us for what this will be like. Because King Richard and King Kong are laughable in comparison to King Jesus. But there are a number of times in scripture where Yahweh is suddenly seen to be the God of gods. And the Bible suggests that the return of Jesus will be something like these. So he then explains a load of examples from the Bible. It says, Scripture describes numerous times when pagans, often too late, realize that they are not just up against any God, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The revelation of Jesus, though, will be more dramatic than even these. You see, that list of pagans knew they were opposing a God of some sort, even though they didn't realize how powerful he was. Their theology, their belief about God, as confused as it was, at least led them to believe that if God stood against them, they were in trouble. But when Jesus is revealed, it will be a shock to almost everyone. People will be expecting a teacher with eyes of blue and a voice of, soothing, a voice of a soothing brook, not a ruler with eyes of fire and a voice of a raging torrent. 
They will be proclaiming peace and security and be met with the one who judges and makes war. The Jesus they are flippant about, humbly riding a donkey, will be replaced with one they are frightened about, triumphantly riding a white horse. And instead of a mellow hippie who turns a blind eye to any wrongdoing, they will encounter a sovereign king with a passion for righteousness and a desire to vindicate those who have suffered and been martyred for his name. Otherwise known as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, all hail King Jesus. This is the moment in history where you suddenly realize who Jesus is. And if you're on the wrong side of him, it is absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying enough, even if you have been following him. So my plea to you is, please, don't be on the wrong side of him when he comes back. For those of us who actually do know him, there is good news in this passage, because we meet with a king who is thirsty and angry at injustice in the world, and that is good news. And also, if you read this passage, do you realize where we are in this passage? It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, white and pure. And the army, and then in chapter a little bit onwards, and the armies of heaven were following, him, following after him, clothed in linen, white and pure. We're not, we're not, we are the ones who ride out with Jesus in this. We're the, we're the people who are with Jesus as he rides out of heaven, which again doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean we'll literally be doing that, but it's showing us we are safe, we are secure, we're the ones who will look him in the face and go, you are terrifying, but at the same time you're beautiful and I want to stay with you for the rest of my life. And he accepts us and makes us holy and righteous and pure. And every single person who has suffered and been persecuted for the gospel will be avenged. Their blood will be avenged. And that's something which the martyrs cry out for in chapter 6. They say, how long until you give justice to those of us who have suffered? And the angels, and the, one of the elders says to them, wait a little bit longer. And we now get a glimpse of the time where they finally are avenged. And it is good news. Because if you've been, if, if, if you are a Nigerian wife of a pastor who has been killed and whose family has been killed as well in front of their eyes... The idea that justice will be done one day is very good news. There is going to be a day where everything, everything that has been evil will be undone. And we will see him face to face. That's the return of the king. It's good news. It's bad news. It's terrifying. But it's the first image and step that John gives us in terms of seeing the marriage supper of the lamb arriving. Then the next step, we had the binding of Satan and the vindication of the saints. So we're going to read chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. So if we can have the passage up. Yeah. So then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed, happy, and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, this is the most controversial passage in the whole New Testament. So I will not be 
unfolding all of its mysteries and explaining exactly what it is, because no one ultimately knows. I have a particular opinion on it. Other people have a particular opinion on it. We agree on the essentials, but we will have very different opinions. So I'm not going to tell you here's what's what. But what I do want to do is quickly just run through the three main views on this. We're going to do it really quickly. Um, so if you guys can quickly come up, we're just going to very, do a very quick human timeline to explain what the three main views of this passage are. So we've got Satan, who's kind of grabbed by an angel, cast into a pit, it's sealed over, and he's bound there for a thousand years, so he can't deceive the nations. And then we get a picture of those who've been beheaded for the gospel, and those who don't have the mark of the beast, which seems to be symbolic for all Christians in, in Revelation, who are raised from the dead and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And that seems to be after the return of Jesus, but before final judgment. So that sounds a little bit confusing. So we're quickly going to try and make some sense of this, or at least give three main views on it. And then I'm going to explain what pretty much everyone agrees on, uh, which is kind of the, the main point, um, at least. So if you three could come up quickly. So we have kind of, I suppose, three main events going on. We have the church age, which is the age we're in now, um, or the age from Jesus' resurrection onwards. We then have Jesus returns, which is what we just looked at, and then new creation, which is what we're going to look at in a couple of weeks' time. And we have this thousand-year reign, thousand-year binding of Satan somehow. So the first view that people hold to is they basically just read the passage chronologically. They say, well, we have the church age, it seems, in Revelation 1 all the way to 18. Then we have Jesus returning, and then a thousand years. So this must be where it happens. Jesus returns, his people are raised from the dead, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years, after which Satan is released for a little while and then gets judged and we get new creation. So that's one view. For those of you who are interested, it's called premillennialism. For those of you who just thought, what the heck? Don't worry about what it's called. That's one view. The second view is that actually what's happening is Revelation keeps kind of recapitulating stuff. It keeps talking about the same thing in different ways. So what's actually happening is you have the church age and then before Jesus returns, you get... A thousand years, and this is symbolic. This is kind of like, it's not that Jesus returns. It's not that the dead are literally raised from the dead. It's that you get people who basically, um, when they become Christians, they get born again. And it's kind of like they've been raised from the dead. And so you get a particular time in history where you get this lovely time of a, a thousand years or whatever it is, where there's an age of prosperity for the, church, for the church, where evangelism goes well, where there's no real opposition from the devil. That's called, and then you get return of Jesus and then new creation. That's called postmillennialism. Again, don't worry about the name if you get freaked out by that. And then finally, a view which sounds a little bit similar but is a bit different, which is amillennialism, that there, which basically means there is no thousand years. What it means is, this is basically a few verses explaining that we are living in the age now where Satan has been bound. So they would see, so I preached a few weeks ago on Revelation 12 where he's cast down from heaven. They'd say him being bound is basically another way of saying that. He was cast down from heaven at the cross and suddenly this glorious age where the church goes forth and the spirit is poured out and people are raised from the dead in the sense that they've gone from being dead spiritually to alive happens. And so in that case, the church age kind of swallows up the 1,000 years and then you get the return of Christ and new creation. Okay, those are the three main views. Um, you guys can go and sit down now. I said it was going to be quick. <laughs> Cheers. Three main views. People argue about about them. You have, a, to be honest, apart from the middle one, post-millennialism, major good commentaries nowadays will take a, a, any of those views. Um, and they'll have very good arguments for it. I have a particular view on it. I'm sure 
some of you guys have a particular view on it, but that really isn't the kind of thing we're going to go for the stake, to the stake for as a church. We don't have a doctrinal statement as a church that says, and here's our position on the millennium, and you can't be a member of the church if you don't agree with us on the millennium. It's not one of those kind of things. But the main point of the passage is you get those who've been beheaded for the gospel, who are raised from the dead, and Satan seems to be bound. The main point of the passage is the saints... Those who have persevered for the gospel will be rewarded. And so whether or not that is literally something that happens after Jesus returns and kind of the saints are raised from the dead and they get to reign for a thousand years before you get final judgment and new creation, or whether that's a picture, a way of saying actually the security of God's people and the fact they're going to get a reward is so certain that we're going to describe it using resurrection and we're going to completely bind Satan up and we're going to make them reign on thrones and portray that as an image. The point is the same. The saints will be vindicated. They will be given their rewards and they will get to reign with Christ. They'll be raised from the dead, whether that's what we get now as a result of knowing Jesus or whether that's something that will happen in the future, which ultimately we, we see it will happen. We will ultimately be raised from the dead. But the point of this passage is the saints are rewarded. And in a sense, that means the application of this passage is not to look at it, not primarily to look at it and go, oh, my goodness, what the heck do I do with this? Um, how do I piece it together? But to say, OK, I don't understand all the details, but I do know that what this is telling me is I need to keep pressing on because those who've been beheaded for the gospel will be vindicated. Those who have persevered will be given their rewards. And that's the primary thing this should do. John's not writing this so that people can write long systematic theologies about the millennium. He's writing this to encourage people, keep on going, keep persevering. There's going to be a time where you're going to be rewarded, and I'm going to describe that in a way which seems maybe slightly confusing, but is very clear. You guys will be rewarded. You will get to reign with Christ, and you will be raised from the dead. Does that make sense? So we're not going to spend any longer on that, but that's the main point of that. The saints will be vindicated or declared in the right publicly. That's what vindication is. They will be given their due reward. They'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. Whatever that actually means, the point is, is, is clear. That's point number two, binding of Satan, vindication of the saints. We then, then get image number three of how the marriage supper of the Lamb arrives, which is the defeat of Satan. So we're going to read um, Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to discover, uh, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched all over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is referring to Jerusalem. That's probably not literally Jerusalem, but a way of, I suppose, referring to the church in a sense. Um, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the point where Satan is not just cast down, but is finally completely and decisively defeated. So it might feel a little bit confusing. You might think, well, wait a minute. At the return of Jesus, didn't everyone get killed or they were on his side and the answer is yes that is what happens in the text but remember it doesn't this is not necessarily all chronological and it's also imagery which means things don't have to be completely and utterly consistent um, that's not how poetry works for example if you've analyzed the poetry a poetry in terms of what actually makes logical sense a lot of it wouldn't but the point that's being made here 
is that Satan is finally destroyed. You've got this massive gathering of an army with the sand, like their number is like the sand of the sea. It's basically saying Satan will do everything he can to oppose God. And if you saw an army like the sand of the sea, my suspicion is you'd think we haven't got a chance. But how were they defeated? Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That half a verse is describing how they're defeated. It's literally just fire comes down, defeats them, and Satan is thrown into hell, basically. This is basically saying there is a day coming where God is going to decisively defeat Satan. He defeated him at the cross, and he was cast down from heaven. And do you remember that, that chorus in, in Revelation 12, where it said, Rejoice, O heavens, for the accuser of our brother has been thrown down. There's going to be a day where the song that is sung of heaven is also going to be sung of earth. Because in chapter 12, it says, but woe to you, O earth, because Satan has been cast down and knows that his time is short. Whereas in Revelation 19, uh, 20, sorry, at the end, it will be rejoice, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth, because Satan has been destroyed. There's going to be a day where his power, the power of evil, the power of sin, and the, the temptation will be taken away because Satan has been decisively defeated. Whether the power that inspires evil over nations, we've seen, we've seen that, that Satan is behind the evil of many different nations that's going on. There's going to be a day where that is taken away. There's going to be no demonic forces going on behind world empires and world structures to cause harm and cause evil and cause damage because Satan will have been defeated by the rider on the white horse and will be thrown into the lake of sulfur and of fire and will be tormented day and night in other words he will be complete there is no chance of him returning he is defeated he has been destroyed and so again the idea with a lot of pretty much revelation you could say the application of revelation is keep on going because there's hope Keep on going. When you are facing temptation, you think, how on earth am I going to push through? There's a day coming where temptation will not exist. There's a day coming where the accuser of our brothers, who has no authority in heaven, will not even be able to try and accuse you to your face. There'll be a day where you... I, I explained already in chapter 12, he has no authority in heaven. His accusations have no power. There's going to be a day where there aren't even any accusations coming. Because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down and defeated and destroyed. And we get to live in the good of that as a result. So that's the third image, the defeat of Satan. And then the final one, we're going to wrap up in a bit. The judgment of the dead. So we've had three pictures so far. The return of the king. The vindication of the saints and the binding of Satan. The defeat of Satan. And then the judgment of the dead. We see verse 11 in chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what is written in the books, according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment, the final reckoning, the point of history where everyone appears before God's throne and has to give an account of their lives. So the New Testament says that over and over again. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And here we get God sitting on his throne to judge everyone. 
Hitler and Stalin will be there. But Joe Bloggs from down the street will also be there as well. Every king and slave will be standing and there will be a great leveling. Just because someone was a powerful emperor does not mean they get any kind of advantage in any way. The point is, everyone will be judged completely justly and righteously for what they have done. Which is, I suppose, what you'd expect a righteous God to do. It's not a very popular image in our culture to have God judging people. But actually, that's what you expect of a judge. You expect a judge to be impartial, to have no favoritism, to not think, oh, well, you're the prime minister, so I'm going to judge you in a, in a more favorable way, whereas you, you don't really, yeah, I don't know who you are. You would expect a judge to be completely just and completely favorable and to judge people, as it says here, according to what they've done. Now, the question is, are you judged according to what you've done? Or, it says here, if anyone's name wasn't found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, he was, fa- he was thrown into the lake of fire. Are you judged according to what you've done? Or are you judged according to whether your name is found in the Book of Life? And the answer is yes. <laughs> you are judged according to what you've done, and you are judged according to whether your name is found in the Lamb's Book of Life. And let me explain how that would work. The idea of being judged according to what you've done and being found in the Lamb's Book of Life actually overlap. It's not like they're kind of two different things, majorly in a sense. Jesus has a great illustration for this. I'm just going to draw on Jesus' illustration because he was a great teacher. He had an illustration involving trees. He said, either you make the tree good and the fruit good, or you make the tree bad and the fruit bad. He said, a, he said, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. And then he makes this line which tends to cause us some trouble because we believe in justification by faith. And Jesus suddenly says, you will be justified by your words, or you will be condemned by your words. At which point we all scream and go, how does that work? The way it works is this. If you are a good tree, you will produce good fruit. If you're a bad tree, you will produce bad fruit. And the idea here isn't, you have sinned once, uh, you've sinned once, that means you're a bad tree. The idea is there is a, if you are in Christ and you have been transformed and changed, there is automatically a change of life that happens. The kind of works that you do, they're not the basis on which you are made righteous before God, but they're the evidence that you have been changed. So if you, I don't know, if you, you imagine, imagine an orange tree standing there and saying, no, I'm a lemon tree, whilst there are no lemons there at all. There's just big orange oranges looking very juicy and saying, no, I'm a lemon tree. That's not going to be a very convincing argument. A lemon tree bears lemons, an orange tree bears oranges. And in the same way, someone who has found Jesus and been transformed, it doesn't mean they suddenly stop sinning at all. In fact, the Bible tells us if anyone says he is without sin, then he's deceived, basically. But it does mean it produces a life where on the final day, God says that demonstrates that you have been saved. That demonstrates your name is in the book of life. And in that sense, I can judge you according to, to, to your deeds, because your deeds are in accordance with the fact that you have been saved and you've been transformed. Does that make sense? Yeah. And everyone will be judged justly. That's how God can just judge people justly. It's not like he just sweeps sin under the carpet. It is dealt with at the cross. And because it's dealt with at the cross, those who are in Christ, who have given their lives to Jesus, are given basically new hearts and the ability to do God's law. And when we fail, that doesn't mean we're not Christians. Because if if anything, when you fail and you feel the kind of, you think, ah, no, I want to please God. If anything, that is evidence of the fact your heart's been transformed because your reaction is, I want to please God. I didn't want to do that. A Christian doesn't want to sin. 
Yeah? That, 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 like your heart's desire has been changed, which means God can look at you on the final judgment and say your works are in accordance with the, the fact that you are a new creation, brand new and made pure. You are allowed in. But for those who actually whose names aren't found in the book of life, he was found thrown into the lake of fire. This is, again, terrifying imagery of the reality that if you consistently go on opposing God and saying, no, I don't want to listen to the good news of the gospel and I don't want to respond to the good news of the gospel. I want to keep doing my own thing. You, it will lead to an et- eternal separation from God. And again, my appeal to you is please don't think that you can produce the kind of works that you need to make yourself righteous before God. You need someone to make you righteous so that you can then do works that are in accordance with that. So please don't get it the wrong way around. It's, it's terrifying imagery. I don't want to dull down. How I wish I could just kind of brush over this and say, oh, it's all, all well in the end. But if your name is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, there is an eternity of separation from God that awaits you, which, quite frankly, is the most terrifying thing that you could possibly imagine. And I don't want to leave you today without having heard that Jesus extends the opportunity for you to have your heart changed and transformed so that you can come to know him. And so on that day, you can stand and he can look at you and say, your name's in there. Your heart has been changed. You've been given a new heart. And I can see that. Your desire is for Jesus. Your desire is to do the things of God. And I can see that transformation happening. I can see my son in you. Welcome in. And we'll see what you are welcomed into next time. Please, would you make that decision? Would you make the decision to follow him? Don't be on the wrong side of the king when he returns. But for Christians, I suppose whilst we should fear this, we should fear that day. There's a kind of a, there's a, in a sense, a good fear to have of the day of judgment. We don't want to be flippant about it and say, oh, it's all going to be all right. It's okay. We are safe. We are secure. And we don't want to be flippant about it. But we should also make it our hope. Because there's this amazing line in verse 14. Then death and Hades, which earlier on in the book in chapter seven, in chapter six, I think, are kind of these powers behind death. Those powers are thrown into the lake of fire. Translated, death is defeated. And we get a day which is coming when we're going to be rewarded. We're going to be vindicated. We're going to be raised from the dead. And the powers of the grave will be completely destroyed. They won't exist anymore. Death will be a memory. Like, can you imagine trying to remember what death is? There's going to be a day coming where that's going to be the case. Where every evil power, every sinful desire, every wrong that has ever been done, and death itself will be taken away, and we will get to reign in resurrected bodies with Jesus. And we're going to respond now, as Christians, I suppose, our our response is actually to worship God and to hope in that day. And I think, actually... In the West, we tend to, that doesn't, that often doesn't tend to be our, our, very much in the front of our mind, the day when Jesus returns. Because to be frank, we do tend to live, have fairly comfortable lives in the grand scheme of things. But if you go to many places in the world where daily life is tough, this is hope. This is hope because they say actually there's going to be a day coming where I'm not going to be sharing a room where I'm lying on the ground with my 10 siblings in the space the size of a small a small study in the uk there's going to be a day where i'm going to be raised from the dead and reign with christ and what i'm going to do is if the band could come up i'm going to read out first corinthians 15 51 to 58 
And I want us to imagine that in the midst of all of the suffering and death and problems that there are in the world, this is a day that we get to look forward to. This is a day that's coming where we're going to be raised and death will be defeated. And I'm going to read out what Paul says about it because he says it in a much better way than I could ever imagine. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 58. He says, look, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means we, we won't all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, the the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There is hope. There's hope. There's a day coming which we can hope that there will be no death, There will be no sickness. There will be no people who are unable to see or unable to hear. There will be no cancer. There will be no problems. There will be no sin. There will be no evil. There will be no war. There will be no destruction. There will be no corruption. Because death is swallowed up in victory.